Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Daniel Mansouray. Daniel is the founder of the Eating Disorder Exercise Clinic and is a specialist mental health physiotherapist and dialectical behavioural therapist. Daniel joins us today to discuss all things exercise, how it might show up in an eating disorder, individuals who may have a difficult relationship with exercise and how to navigate exercise and recovery. Hello Daniel. Hi Hannah, how are you? I'm good thank you. Oh wow, that's the first time anyone's asked me how are you before I've asked them. Amazing. oh really yeah that's pretty speedy <laughs> no I'm good thank you how are you I'm good I'm good thank you good well I'm really excited to speak to you today exercise and eating disorders is something that I think is super interesting and I think something that's often not understood properly so I guess I wanted to start by kind of working out where you fit in in terms of in terms of your role and obviously in the introduction I mentioned that you're a physiotherapist and you do DBT how does that all tie together in your practice? Yeah uh, good question Um, so originally um, my original training was in physiotherapy Um, it's quite a while ago did my undergrad in physio uh, so I did a lot of work around like, in sports settings, um, in terms of kids. Um, and then I kind of transitioned into mental health settings. So I managed to kind of bring physio into kind of mental health wards. So like eating disorder units and personality disorder units, um, kind of adding in a specific physiotherapy kind of approach. Um, I won't go into too much detail about that now, um, but I'll, I'll kind of connect it later on. Um, and then I was able to kind of transition into, into therapy. So I did a kind of post-grad in the form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so I worked a bit in CAMS. And then I ended up doing more intensive training in DBT. So you complete kind of like two intensive trainings um, over a period of time, DBT. And then you can kind of work as a DBT therapist. Um, so I found trying to combine the two was really useful, especially um, in eating disorders specifically. I found that it's such a, it's a condition um, whereby like, psychological and physical are both very, very important. Um, whereas usually you find that in let's say depression for example or kind of other mental health difficulties or conditions it's kind of seen as more psychologically heavy Mm. whereas I found that working in eating disorders especially in patient units um, was very much physical and psychological so I found the use of having kind of both kind of in my work really yeah yeah absolutely I think you're so right in that I think whilst eating disorders aren't a physical condition there are so many physical consequences so kind of you know imagine having a physiotherapist is amazing and I guess just in case people are listening and kind of don't know what DBT is would you mind kind of just ex- giving a bit of an explanation about that so DBT is dialect stands for dialectical behavioral therapy uh, dialectical in this well in the sense of DBT means almost two opposing forces can exist together so I want to recover, I don't want to recover. Both can be true. Okay, and it kind of works on that continuum. Um, similar principle, intense emotion and numbing. It's, they're two opposites, but we look at how they can both exist in one presentation. So dialectical behavioral therapy is kind of third wave cognitive behavioral therapy. 
So it's slightly adapted in quite a few different ways um, from CBT. Uh, and it was originally designed to work with clients who have borderline personality disorder, otherwise known as emotionally unstable personality disorder. And the whole overall is a lot, it's very complicated to explain, but overall it's about helping a client manage, understand and regulate their, their emotion effectively. So instead of having to numb it as a coping mechanism, you're able to actually experience it, sit with emotion and manage it uh, equally. If you feel like you can't manage emotions, they're too intense, and that might lead to different behaviours. If it helps you find a way to, to, to manage it, not let it get to, to such intensities and allow it to kind of live that life worth living, ultimately. Uh, it has many different formats. It's, it's quite detailed. But generally, if you see it as a client, you, you'd have either one-to-one -one DBT or group DBT as well. So the group is all about having skills to help, number one, manage emotions, communicate your needs, manage crisis situations and to be more mindful and present and then one-to-one -one dbt is a lot more detailed and really ultimately breaks down unhealthy behaviors and looks at how we can kind of turn it into more healthy behaviors ultimately through the root of managing your emotion mm. i mean then maybe i'm jumping the gun here but i feel like that i mean when you were saying that it sounds like it would link in so well to exercise because of initially when you said I want to recover I don't want to recover I, I feel like there'd be that kind of pulling between I want to exercise I don't want to exercise and then equally when you're talking about coping mechanisms I guess exercise and excessive exercise is one of those that is used that's probably a maladaptive coping mechanism that you'd work through in DBT yeah exactly exactly so there's a lot of there's many different realms that DBT can help with specific to exercise um a great example, even at the beginning, I think you slightly touched on that, is if someone doesn't want to exercise or, or is not even able to acknowledge there is a difficulty or problem with the exercise, we do a lot of work on radical acceptance. So a lot of the beginning piece of work is how do we move towards accepting the reality that maybe this exercise is slightly unhealthy or it is having a negative impact on my life and it's something I do want to or maybe even need to change. So a lot of work within DBT is, is just looking towards how can we move towards healthy acceptance of our situation and our current reality. And that's the first kind of step towards allowing us to change our reality. Whereas I often find clients or people, even anyone in general, if we're kind of denying or not able to accept a certain reality, it makes it a lot harder to change it or even come to terms with it. Um, so that's a key part. And, and like you said, just having coping mechanisms is crucial. So a lot of people, we might struggle to manage or sit with certain emotions. Exercise is the perfect kind of tool to help as, to regulate, as we know, even physiologically. Um, so unfortunately, that can be one of the ways it can become quite addictive if it's helping us manage certain emotions. So having healthy coping mechanisms can also be really useful, um, especially if we're exercising too much, like you say. So sometimes exercise can be healthy to manage emotions. If that's our only tool, uh, that's a one way that it can start to become unhealthy quite quickly. Mm. I mean, you just answered my next question, I guess, because I was going to say, I think the line between like a healthy or an unhealthy or maybe like a healthy and, or a disordered relationship with exercise is so blurred. I think you've said it there as well with like the coping mechanism. Sometimes exercise can feel like it is something that relieves you know, stress, anxiety or makes you feel good. 
but do you have a way that you would define a healthy and an unhealthy relationship with exercise yeah it's a really tricky tricky one like you say is it's a it's all about context as well it's quite hard like you say one thing I might suggest to one person is very different to, to someone in a very different context so I often use more of a like a like a biopsychosocial model kind of view on it so I like to say to to my clients for example is a relationship healthy biologically psychologically and socially and if it's not hitting all three specific to your own context then there's something we might want to explore in a bit more detail so so what I mean by that is physically are they in a place physically uh, or biologically where their body can healthfully manage the amount of exercise they're putting it through so did they, for example, have an injury? Um, have they been advised to rest? Maybe that might have a low BMI. Just depends on the individual. Uh, then psychologically, of course, we know there's a, a range of different kind of psychological um, factors to bear in mind, which would suggest if it's healthy or unhealthy. And then, of course, socially. So looking at, again, how is it impacting their social life? How is it impacting family and different dynamics within that? Uh, often I find clients who say, but I'm using it, it makes me feel good. So it's a positive, it must be healthy. And it's a tricky one because I, I understand where they're coming from. But equally, if their BMI is maybe in, let's say, a high risk zone, doesn't mean it's healthy just because it's making you feel good. Unfortunately, it's not having a, an impact on your physical health. Equally, they might say, oh, yeah, I'm not seeing my friends at all in the evening because uh, I'm exercising. So it's also having a negative impact on the kind of social aspects. So it's quite complex, but I often look at it, yeah, through the lens of those three key areas. I'd say more commonly the psychological kind of ways I'd define it to be more unhealthy um, is things such as if it's very rigid, if they feel like they, there's a really set routine that can't be broken. Um, is it used as a way to improve mood, but is it used as the only source of improving mood? That one's a tricky one. Um, again, that still might not be unhealthy but it's just one kind of telling factor. Is it used to avoid emotions? Um, the people exercising through injury? Um, there's a whole range of kind of psychological factors. Uh, obviously a common one more expected with an eating sort of realm is, is how does it link to my relationship with food? So again, is it used to compensate? So do you exercise before a meal to allow yourself to eat? Or do you exercise after a meal because you've eaten? Um, so again, it can get quite, detailed there's many many kind of i'd say reading and green flags of healthy and unhealthy exercise very much depends on the individual um and the context they're in so i guess another pitfall is working with maybe more athlete uh, population is is tricky again because again if it's part of their job or social so socially it's their role it's their job it's their career equally then understanding how do we define healthy and unhealthy gets a bit more complicated because if I'm saying to someone who's not an athlete I don't think you should be we should explore your relationship exercise because you're basing it on, on I guess body shape and changing your weight and shape whereas an athlete might be doing it let's say for uh, I guess uh, a weight dependent sport like boxing that's the literal sport that's part of the sport they're literally doing it to impact their weight or shape so it can get quite complicated. So very much, in my opinion, depends on the individual, the individual's context at the time. And then how does that fit into their own, I guess, biopsychosocial model for themselves? Gosh, there's so many things to consider, isn't there? Like when you said the three at the start, I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds like it could go. And then 
actually within that there's so much um I think it's really interesting like one thing that you were saying I've always kind of thought about it you know when people say um you know exercise oh, I do exercise because it makes me feel good like that obviously can be a genuine thing but I think the way that I've always seen that as a negative is if it if it's the only way to make you feel good so if not doing it makes you feel bad um like that's always been my way of looking at it because I think a lot of the time people can do exercise and it makes them feel good but they cannot do exercise and find other things to make them feel good whereas you know my personal experience myself was exercise was something I had to do in order to feel good and if I didn't do it there was just so much anxiety and distress that nothing else felt like manageable or anything mm-hmm. yeah and that makes a lot of sense uh, and like you say a lot of a lot of people I've worked with say, will say something very similar to yourself um, and it's that idea like you say how do we get to a place where we can convince someone to say okay if that's it's really positive to find something that makes you feel good but like you say if that's the only thing and it's also having an impact on your social and, and physical side of things how do we look at this a bit deeper so can you stop for example how would you feel if you you didn't do it or you did it slightly differently and seeing exactly what comes up because like you said often underlying emotions will come up like anxiety mm. um, and that's the kind of work you really want to be looking at then how can we actually manage the anxiety um, outside of being reliant on exercise but yeah like it's a really important area the link with the emo- emotions and exercises is, is key and that's a key thing that dbt really tries to work on and I guess, I mean, this might differ for individuals, like you said at the start, but if someone was working through that and kind of their emotions was, you know, were tangled into that, would the approach be to stop exercise completely and try and build it up from the bottom or would there be a different approach? I guess the key thing is, yeah, I guess everyone's very individual. So it really depend on the individual person. I guess a key thing for me would be not necessarily removing it completely, but allowing it to kind of, let's say, change and adapt it. So let's say they've got a specific routine, I don't know, let's say an hour every morning, um, and they feel like they can't stop that, otherwise the anxiety will come up. I'd want to look at how can we either remove just one or or adapt it slightly, Mm -hmm. allow the anxiety to surface, but show them that they can still manage it. So there's there's many different ways to do it, but one example would be challenging someone to not exercise for that one hour a week and then, just being aware and observe what emotion comes up for them and then hopefully have the skills to label the emotion and then manage it and regulate the emotion. So they feel like, oh, wow, I am able to actually manage it by myself without going to the gym or without doing this sport. So you're trying to just show them and empower them to to have the the skills and ability to let emotions surface, manage them without the need to be reliant on, on the coping mechanism like exercise um so again yeah there's many ways you could do that you might not want to do it in that way it could just be how can we show them that a more fun sociable sport uh can be just as as useful and whilst at the same time outside of that work on regulation of of certain emotions so they're still not reliant on it but without pulling away the exercise so yeah i'd say very much dependent on where they're at in in when they eat the sauna where they're at physically psychologically just depends on the individual of what approach I, I might specifically use around that. 
I, I remember speaking to somebody before about eating disorder recovery. They referred to eating dis- an eating disorder like a crutch in terms of mm. you wouldn't just like pull someone's eating disorder away because that's what they're kind of using to to lean on at the moment. So I guess it's the same with that exercise in that you can't you maybe wouldn't just strip it from somebody completely. Um, but like like you said, allow them to adapt a bit and see, you know, can they manage with like a little bit less time on the crutch and stuff like that? Um, so that, that seems that seems quite logical. Um, I wanted to pick up on what you said as well earlier about if somebody's sport is their career, because um, I think a lot of the time with that, it can kind of be tied up into someone's identity, which then I think gives you quite a lot more to have to kind of work with. But I guess the kind of question that I wanted to ask you mentioned boxing specifically and I've always thought you know with boxing and those weight cuts kind of how how would you support somebody in navigating that because I feel like that would be quite a challenging thing to go through to have such a dramatic change in your body yeah yeah good question a very yeah very challenging like you say uh, both looking at the identity in itself in regards to athletes and potential eating disorders and then specific to individual sports. I think weight categories are very specifically hard because, like you say, the literal nature of the sport is to fit a certain weight. So I guess, again, there's, there's many ways you could go around it. I mean, one way separate to, to, to that would be almost how can you empower the identity outside of the sport empower other aspects that might be important to them, other important values, um, and see if that would actually allow them to, I guess, move away from competing. Because I guess if you're not competing, the weight cuts aren't necessarily um, a thing. So they could might engage in the training, but not necessarily the, the competing. Mm-hmm. That would be more if I'm really worried about their, their presentation. So maybe it'd be about, yeah, empowering their identity in the, well, empowering their identity outside of the sport to allow them to either temporarily for the long term change sports or at least kind of reduce the competitive side of it and therefore the weight cut side of it if it's part of their career and it's it is a possibility that it's it remains a part of of who they are i guess it would be about education number one really making sure that they're aware and understanding the impact of their body um, on the body physically the dangers of it again making really clear what when is it becoming unhealthy um, in the run-up to it. So, for example, some athletes, I think, will be training, let's say boxers, will train much higher than the weight they're going to need to cut to. And then in the last week or few days, they'll lose a significant amount of weight. So it could be around exploring how can we get much closer to their, their weight without the need for an actual weight cut, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so, again, psychologically allowing them to show them that they can still perform at a high level at a certain weight without the need to drop in such a a low level of weight um so yeah i guess that is a very complex that plant group specifically would be very complex to to work with and explore explore that understanding of yeah the weight cut and the impact of it but i guess as we say education and then giving them the tools to reduce i guess reduce the impact on the body and and, and psychologically as well and just empower them to be aware of what decisions they're making how how does it impact them and their life yeah I think what you said about um, kind of like empowering them to kind of find identity outside of the sport, that sounds so important because, you know, I think there's so many 
scenarios where somebody might have to not continue with a sport like the one that springs to mind the most is injury but I can imagine you know if your career and your identity is all tied up into a sport to then not be able to do that you know even if it's not an eating disorder that comes like mentally that would be quite challenging to navigate I would imagine yeah definitely I have a lot of clients who found that that specifically that challenge is real well really big thing for them um, for example, I have a few dancers who, again, who've got to a point where I dance their main identity. It's the, their sole purpose. If, if you ask them to, to name any other part of their identity, they would, they'd struggle, understandably, as they've done dance since they were, they were a young age. Um, and so when they got to maybe a stage where maybe because of the eating disorder, they're unable to dance, that has a drastic impact um, on them and who they are as a person. So like you said, when in terms of recovery and working towards recovery, uh, yeah, empowering identity and exploring what are what is important to that person, what are their values, what else can have meaning to their life, and how can we start gradually kind of bringing those parts into their life so they they can see there are other paths than just the one path of the dance route. So it's not to take away from the dance route; it's, mm. it can still be there, but it's just to to show actually it's important to just expand the identity so we're not just solely reliant on one venture. I mean, I found that a lot of clients. Find that very, find it very freeing to to feel like oh wow I actually have other talents I'm actually good at other things I'm I'm not just reliant on this there's other areas of life that I am interested in and I can pursue um, and that could be really useful and and a key it also avoids a major pitfall in recovery with these specific clients as if they suddenly feel like the dance is out of reach that can drastically impact their sudden engagement in the, the treatment. Mm because that was their main reason to recover potentially. And that was removed from them. So then showing them actually there's all these other routes can, can be really empowering for someone and make them, I guess, again, feel motivated to continue on that journey. Yeah, that's such a good point, actually. In the, I bet a lot of people, recovery is almost, you know, if you're talking about dance specifically, like, oh, well, you know, when I'm better and when I'm recovered, I can go back to my dance or I can start to do more dance. So, but I guess, also you'd want to tread that lightly in that you wouldn't want them to get back to a point where the the exercise is compulsive or I guess that kind of the exercise is what they're recovering for so they then you've got almost got that compensation of I can recover because I'm going to exercise I feel like that could be a trap that people could fall into yeah yeah exactly and that's why again it's part of the treatment you'd want to understand why is dance the main identity and what, what is their relationship with dance and exercise? And, and is it, is it actually, like you say, is it potentially more when you, when it, I guess, scratched me for the surface, maybe it wasn't dance they were interested in. Maybe it was actually um, a slight interest, but actually dance gave them all these other things. So maybe it impacted, I don't know, gave them confidence, gave them whatever it might be, which is still really healthy. And you could show them actually, you, you can, it's not necessarily the dance you're interested in, it's all these other areas of life that, that it's providing for you. And we can kind of explore that in different avenues. Equally, like you say, unfortunately, maybe it was used in an unhealthy way. Maybe it was used to maintain a certain way. It might be used to, to, to change body, the body, et cetera. So how can we ensure as part of the process of, of recovering treatment that we're, we're building them up towards, again, if they do go back to dance, a healthy journey within dance and a healthy kind of experience of dance not necessarily an unhealthy one so yeah I guess like you say really understanding 
the individual's relationship with exercise and the specific sport would be really important when looking at how do they return to the sport in a healthy way as well. And I found a lot of clients as well, once they unpick their own relationship with exercise, they're actually interestingly not as motivated to return to certain sports, hmm. um, which is, yeah, something to think about. Yeah, that is really interesting. Because I was just going to say then, you know, if you if you did return to the same sport, kind of would you have any advice for people? I mean, I guess it might depend on what their red flags are in terms of when it becomes a bit disordered. But would you have any tips for people kind of if they're going back into a sport, how to maintain that kind of healthy relationship rather than going back to an unhealthy relationship? Yeah, I guess I'll say the first thing is always awareness, awareness and acceptance. So just someone accepting what maybe potential current or previous um, unhealthy aspects of their relationship exercise. Um, so they sure they're, they're accepting that, well, this, this aspect of my exercise is unhealthy. And then just being aware of, yeah, how is it unhealthy? Um, so again, I'll say returning to sport, the key is being aware of, okay, let's say, for example, um, I can become very rigid with my routine. Mm-hmm. I often cut out my friends when I go back to this sport. Um, so uh, it's, I already know that I really want to improve my mood and it's my only strategy still as I go back into the sport. It's my only way of improving mood a few warning signs already just to be aware of so you'd want to kind of build already put a bit of work in prior to returning so for example you'd want to look into other ways of getting meaning and positive mood in life you'd want to look at how you can still see your friends outside of the schedule of the sport you're going to see so just kind of preempting it in, in advance and then just yeah just being aware of the kind of like we said before the biopsychosocial unhealthy factors and, and already being aware of how you can start transitioning them to become healthy. And a, a, another key thing is understanding how each sport has different ways it can, I guess, well, different red flags, so to speak. So, for example, you're going back to swimming. I know a lot of swimmers are advised to wear kind of much smaller swimsuits than, than their actual size. And again, how's that then going to impact their perception of their body? Mm. So, again, already thinking specific to sport, am I going to be prepared to actually wear a swimsuit that fits and be okay with the, the potential belief of how it's going to impact my performance? Or So yeah, just being aware of the different risks each specific sport might have on, on leading to, I guess, potential relapse within the eating disorder or disordered eating is really, yeah, really important, really. Yeah, definitely. I liked what you said as well about the social aspect in terms of seeing people that you may do that sport with outside of that environment because I was going to ask you you know a lot of the time when people do do a sport their friends tend to do that same sport as well like I know when I was doing powerlifting I spent so many hours in the gym that the only friends I had were powerlifters so then when I wanted to kind of pull myself away from powerlifting and not do it it was then like oh but like what if people don't want to be friends with me now so I guess that's kind of another thing on top that mentally would be quite difficult to navigate is that fear of, oh, people aren't going to want to be friends with me now because I'm not necessarily doing that sport that we all did together. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And that, again, links to the identity. So if you, if like you say, if you're doing the sport, let's say, like I say, weightlifting, um, again, if you're doing that within day-to-day, you're seeing the same people and that's you're building a community, which is a really healthy thing to do. Um and often sport does provide community. That's a key, key positive of sport. But again, like you say, if that's then your only source of community, your only identity, take that away. 
from you. And again, like you said, it's going to be a, a quite a scary or daunting experience um, for different reasons. Um, and again, like you say, it might remove your confidence in, in meeting new people and, and all sorts can happen. So similar to like we said before, I, I guess finding those ways of, of increasing identity and increasing social networks and connections, again, outside of that specific sport, so that you know that you have different realms to, to, again, to go to. So you're not just kind of stuck within that one sport and that one identity. You can actually branch out. Uh, but equally, I would also promote to a lot of people, clients who want to engage in a sport to engage in a more sport which has a community feel to it. So still, again, it's just about finding that right balance. Um, I think the community aspect is, is key, but equally feeling like there's other communities outside of sport as well. Would you say that, I mean, I don't know whether there's any research or anything, but would you say kind of community-based sports or more team-based sports are less likely to kind of develop a disordered eating, a disordered relationship with food than sports that are just kind of what you do on your own? Hard question. I guess the difficulty is is how would the the definition of community, I guess, is subjective. You could argue is, mm, how, does that make sense? So, it depends how we look at community in, uh, in general. I'd say the more evidence is specific to more like lean-based sports, which like endurance sports, aesthetic sports and weight category sports. So I guess within those three categories, you could argue some of them are team sports, some of them are more individual sports. Um, but I guess anyone could argue they, they're getting a sense of community from, from any sport in theory. Um, but I would probably say in terms of prevention, let's say you were to return to the sport, it's probably more healthy, at least at the beginning, again, depends on the person, to go to a sport which is social, which is fun, um, something you just enjoy and you're just in a moment as in focusing on the community aspect. Mm. Um, I'm sure it would be a real positive, at least in reintroducing someone back into sport and exercise. Um, and again, there's many reasons as well. Other people can hold you more accountable. Uh, it, it's more likely, not always, but could it increase your chance of enjoying it so you're not going to be focused on potential unhealthy elements. Mm. Um, so there's a range of reasons what, yeah, why community and team sports would probably, in theory, be more, more healthy or at least preventative. But again, like we say, always depends on the individual. It could be very unhealthy for someone for different reasons. Um, so yeah yeah I think I've always kind of had the attitude maybe more recently um since kind of stepping away from powerlifting that a team sport it just seems like it would be maybe less compulsive because you're almost you're, you're doing it as a team so let's say you have you know maybe you play hockey and you've got a training night and it's not playing a game of hockey it's doing more like circuit-based stuff but that's kind of somebody a coach has provided that to you and you follow that and then maybe afterwards you might go out with everyone for dinner or you might go for a drink and it I don't know it almost encourages a healthier relationship a more balanced relationship with exercise rather than sort of I don't know going to the gym and then putting your headphones in not talking to anyone pushing yourself pushing yourself a bit more then going home and still not feeling like you quite did enough. I didn't know that that's not everybody's experience when they, when they go to the gym. Um, but I feel like those sorts of thoughts might be less common in a team sport because of that kind of camaraderie and the community that you've got. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. 
Uh, I, I agree. I think, like I said, the bigger picture is that it's more than just a, when we speak about community, I guess, within sport, it's more than just the literal sport itself. Mm-hmm. It's like you say, you might have the training session, but then you've got the social afterwards. You've got, you might have the, the food out, the drinks out, connecting outside of that, thinking about a strategy, whatever it might be. The community is wider than the sport itself. So I completely agree. Um, it takes away from the, I guess, precedence on exercise, yeah, literally. And it says, actually, wait, this is team. This is people. This is friends. This is friends for life. This is family almost. So I do think if you can convert it with that mindset, it definitely will have a real powerful, positive, hopefully, impact. Um, and exactly like you say, it's, it's, it's not as isolating. We're not often with unhealthy relationships with exercise. It can become quite isolating often. Um, and again, the, the rigidity, the routine is not as possible to complete within a team sport necessarily. Not always, but generally the, the kind of community team we're thinking of, you're not necessarily going to be monitoring with a, a Fitbit, for example. Yeah. So again, little things that would maintain potentially an unhealthy relationship exercise are probably stronger in an isolating-based sport. But again, like we say, it's never specific to an individual. <laughs> it can always change. I always have to say that it's important because everyone's, yeah. I found everyone's relationship with exercise is so different, completely different depending on context, the person, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And no, I think it's great that you do keep saying that because I think, you know, it could be very easy, especially if somebody's rule driven or whatever to kind of hear what you're saying about, okay, well, I have to do that because that's, that's what Daniel said. Um, So it's, yeah, it's really good to kind of, you know, mention that obviously this is kind of thinking about it broadly. Um, I just wanted to go back to what you were saying as well about um, the research in terms of, you know, the prevalence of eating disorders is more in those lean sports. Um, So maybe just to discuss that a bit more. So, I mean, I guess from how you described those sports, it kind of makes sense, but it might not make sense for everybody. But why do you think that the prevalence of eating disorders might be more common in those sports compared to, I guess, maybe also to describe what the other sports are um, that eating disorders are less prevalent in? Yeah, yeah. So so I guess well, I'll start with what, I guess, what is sometimes commonly recognised as the different categories of sport. I guess we could separate them um, into lean and non-lean sports. Um, so I've got, I guess non-lean first is often linked with like ball sports, like basketball, volleyball. You've got power sports, like we've spoken about powerlifting, um, and technical sports, maybe like golf or skiing, for example. So that, those are kind of non-lean uh, sports. Um, again, those are not always, but could be recognized more as team sports. It, it just very much depends. Um, the argument is that those sports are less likely to increase the, the risk of developing um, an eating disorder in comparison to lean sports. Lean sports, as I mentioned, I, um, I think I touched on a bit before, is more like endurance, aesthetic, and weight-dependent sports. So those seem to convincingly or significantly as shown in research to increase the risk of developing an eating disorder. Uh, I guess there's many arguments as to why. So like endurance sports, for example, uh, kind of sports that require like a substantial or sustained amount of energy from aerobic based sports. Um, they could include running, swimming, cycling, triathlon, rowing. Um, and I guess the key thing already with those is there's a high, high energy demand often in those sports. So a lot of research shows there's a higher chance of 
um, people developing female athlete triad symptoms, which is looking at kind of the relationship between your low energy levels, um, kind of menstrual cycle and bone health. So that kind of looks at those three and it, it suggests that if we're exercising and we're not having the right nutrition and we're exercising at a high level, it's like at an endurance sport, um, often then that impacts, I guess, our menstrual cycle and ultimately hormones and our hormones become imbalanced, which leads to an impact on bone health and our bones become weaker. So that's a commonly, that's called female athlete triad. So that can be commonly seen. Equally, stepping up from that, they've kind of adapted the, the term in a different way to relative energy deficiency in sport, red S, um, which is a similar concept, which is saying that ultimately the exercise is kind of going above and beyond how much nutrition or the energy you're fueling your body with. And then that just has a knock-on effect ultimately on, on hormones and it becomes a hormonal imbalance at some level. And then that just impacts the whole bodily system in a different way, in different ways. So it could impact performance, concentration, again, bone health, um, different areas. So, so yeah, those kind of more physical-based conditions are often linked to like endurance sports where, like we say, there's high energy demands. Often also there's a lot of beliefs in sports, like endurance sports around kind of having lower weight equals improved performance. So again, that's already putting people on the potential, the pathway of, of kind of, I guess, restriction, depending on what it might be or, or behaviors that might lead to lower, lowering the weight. Um, again, it, the key things to acknowledge as well of endurance sports often are more individual-based sports. They're not always, but often individual sports. So they're more likely to be isolating. Um, there's more increased chance of being having a routine or rigidity around the sport. You can often monitor these sports, like we say on like a Fitbit, for example. Easily accessible. We can all go out, out the house and run, in theory, as long as we're not injured, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, yeah, to bear in mind, endurance sports are a key one which have been recognised. We've also got aesthetic sports. Um, I think I touched on that a bit earlier around swimming. So aesthetic sports are basically sports that are kind of judged on someone's kind of physicality, appearance, and their technicality or like kind of artistry um, in a sport. So let's say figure skating, competitive dance, gymnastics, diving, synchronized swimming. All sports recognised as at times having high prevalence of eating disorders or disordered eating. So similar, they have slightly different reasons for why someone might be more likely to develop an eating disorder or unhealthy relationship with food. One would be, again, a pressure to maintain a lean physique. Um, and that can be specifically because it can be judged on someone's appearance or, or physicality. Um, and like we said, again, if you're, if you're doing a sport where you're in a swimsuit, and there's a whole crowd of people, you're already more likely to be worried about what are people thinking about me? Are, are people shouting comments? Um, what are the media saying? And that's already going to impact how you view your body and view yourself. Um, again, teammates, there's going to be a lot of comparisons with your teammates. If other people seem to have lean physiques, or what you might define as a lean physique, you might feel an internal pressure or ex and external pressure to have a lean physique. There's a lot of research that shows that athletes within aesthetic sports have a much greater drive for fitness uh, than other athletes. And then, yes, yeah, so the weight dependent, again, we touched on it a bit before as well, would be boxing, wrestling, judo. Um, and I guess the very, the nature of the, the sport itself requires one to lose weight. Um, unfortunately, the belief is 
again, right at the end of training um, in a short amount of time in unhealthy kind of methods. So yeah, in theory, based on a lot of research, all those three categories can yeah, really in increase the prevalence or well, development of, of an eating disorder or unhealthy relationship with exercise and, and food. I suppose, I mean, this might be a the million dollar question, um, but I guess like everything that you've described in terms of sort of, I guess the way that the sports need to be performed could potentially be a symptom of an eating disorder. Um, and I, so I guess it's, it's looking at, you know, maybe someone's intent with the behaviours as to why they're doing it and, you know, whether that is healthy or unhealthy. But I guess, what would your thoughts be about kind of preventing eating disorders from happening in the first place? So, you know, obviously the environments that you've described are, could be pretty, you know, intense environments for developing an eating disorder. But do you think there's anything that people can do to ensure that those behaviours are maintained at a reasonable level and things don't develop into an eating disorder? Yeah, I think, I guess, as with a lot of things, education, I guess education in general, firstly for the staff and then for the, I guess, the, the sports person himself. And really just so everyone's aware of, of how is the environment that they shape, let's say the staff, for example, the environment that they're shaping, how does that impact another human being? How does that impact their, their psyche or how they think and, and act? Um, so I think education and ensuring firstly in terms of prevention, the staff are very aware of how what they say um, and the environment they create, how big an, of an impact it can really have on, on an individual. Um, and if they're aware of how what they can say and, and act impacts someone, then they're more likely to change, ideally. Not necessarily, but ideally. Um, so yeah, first things first, I guess, education. So everyone's aware of the risks, specific eating disorders as well, being really aware of how things like body shaming and um, comparing them with other people in the class, for example, how much of a drastic impact that can really have on, on, it, on an individual. Um, so yeah, education, education for the students as well, or the sports people, being for them to be really aware of, of how the sport could impact them and, and ensuring that they might maybe they're in a place that's healthy or, or at least understand what healthy versus unhealthy exercise does look like. Because um, a lot of clients aren't aware their relationship with exercise is unhealthy until you break it down and you explore it with them. So again, if they knew, maybe if they knew a bit more before, if the sport itself or the, the staff, the coaching staff could explain it before, it might give them more ability to, to make different decisions. So yeah, I guess education, I guess it's tricky because as you know, sport is in high demand across the globe and yeah. the constant pressure to be the best and be better and better. Um, so people are finding all sorts of ways to improve. So unfortunately, I think there's always going to be a, uh, whether it's spoken or unspoken pressure to to find a way to to be the best. And unfortunately, that's gonna, there's always going to be unhealthy roots within that. Um, but I do think education always starts with education um, for, for both staff and both clientele. I suppose that's the difficult thing to navigate, isn't it? Because you could have somebody that, you know, if, if we're speaking about, let's say, give an example of a weight cut, you could mm. have somebody that puts themselves on a pretty intense weight cut. So they have a really restrictive diet in order to do that. And they're pushing themselves hard. They're exercising loads because they're training loads. But it's for a specific 
um, competition or a specific day or whatever. And that's their main focus. And then as soon as that's happened, they're then able to kind of regain normality and kind of go back to whatever. I would say that is potentially, you know, how it, I don't want to say should be, but kind of how maybe it, I'm going to say should be, but that's not really what I want to say. But then I guess the issue would come if somebody was engaging in all of that and then they weren't able to leave those behaviours behind once they'd had their competition or their game or whatever, then maybe that's where I would see that there was an issue. Checking in with athletes throughout in terms of, you know, how is this affecting you mentally rather than just kind of an expectation that they'll be able to take it on their shoulders and do it anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That last point specifically, having maybe continued support, um, I guess, like you said, even in high risk sports, for example, having a even a specific staff member could be a therapist, sports psychologist, or even just an allocated member of staff who's been trained. Just like a support person to just be aware of what is going on for this this individual, this athlete, and and constantly being, I guess, like you say, someone that they can speak to or or at least explore if things are going becoming slightly unhealthy. Is there someone who they can they feel safe enough with to talk about that to? Um, or at least someone who's, I guess, got the education and understanding to see it without the person saying it as well, so that they can catch it and bring it up in a in a safe way with that that person. Um, and yeah, like you say, specific to the sport, it's it's how do they adapt afterwards? So like you say, they maybe they, they had a healthy fight camp, then a, the the weight cut in itself is is unhealthy. Losing a certain amount of weight might become unhealthy, but then after that, are they able to to go back to normal eating habits, normal, whatever we well, normal, in inverted commas, healthy <laughs> eating habits. Um, and are they able to then, again, like you say, are they are the other aspects of their exercise and um, healthy or would they become ingrained with unhealthy beliefs because of what they've already started doing? Mm. So it's a, like you say, it's a very hard one. It's not, it, it, there's many factors involved in it, but the education, the ongoing support and understanding will be key in that. And, and recognition, early recognition, mm-hmm. having staff who are equipped to, to spot it early on if someone can't see it in themselves, and then being able to communicate it in a, in a non-judgmental, is, a, is really important as well, a non-judgmental way to the person and allow them to then find the right help. That's another key one, actually. Finding the right support um, for the individual. Yeah, definitely. I liked what you said there about no judgment because I feel like... I can imagine um, if you were engaging in a sport and then developed diff- like uncomfortable behaviours, I can imagine that kind of admitting that might feel like you're not as good as your sport or as you're meant to be, or you're not maybe as mentally tough enough to, to cope with the pressures of the sport. So to have somebody, like you say, to be able to recognise that without maybe the individual having to come forward, but kind of just reaching out to them and saying, how's everything going? Like, are you manage everything well? Um, would be a really good space, I think, for for all people that are competing in sport. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because I guess stigma in general, but specifically in sport, is a really big issue still. Mental health in general, let alone in eating yeah. disorders. Um, so I agree. If there's really safe, confidential avenues that people feel like they can access to, to discuss any potential difficulties, I think that would be really important. I think a lot of env- sporting environments can be, can appear not necessarily hostile is the right word but quite uh you have to look strong you have to be at your best all the time there's no room for weakness whatever their definition of weakness is um so it might seem like an unsafe 
environment to to bring up any difficulties it's literally because of the fear of looking weak mm-hmm. even as we know it is it's a sign of strength ideally to be able to to name how you're, you're feeling and what's going on um so yeah i do think it's really important that that there are safe avenues for for athletes to be able to to access around that and, and bring up whatever's going on for them yeah absolutely um i guess just on that note do you know of any places i guess that i mean maybe it's not specific to athletes in general but are there any resources that kind of coaches or athletes could use in terms of if they are struggling with potential eating disorder behaviors it's quite hard to find uh, resources around it there are a few uk sport have a resource around eating disorders um there's a there's a project red s which i've recently found which is really great which provides resources um specific to athletes and experiences of of what we spoke a bit about earlier red s um and in general um there's a lot of individual professionals if, if you research certain professionals you'll be able to find some people who have a lot of provide a lot of education mm-hmm. around the topic um other resources there's a there's safe there's s-e-e-s guidelines which explore kind of how to return to exercise in a safe way again primarily for use of professionals um i wouldn't advise if you're so if someone was having a difficulty with exercise using it for themselves if that makes any sense mm-hmm. um so yeah i guess it's something you have to really look into nub meda the n-e-d-a um also an organization i think based in america have a lot of resources on their website um but yeah the key thing this does bring up there is a lack of resources and and uh, i guess research in the area specifically which then makes it a lot harder for people to find relevant resources um so yeah yeah well i think definitely it is needed um because it's such an area that you know it could be such a high prevalence so definitely if people are looking for a project then there's one for them just to finish off i have a couple of questions from um the listeners what you've been wanting to ask so the first one is how do i find enjoyment when i still use exercise to punish myself yeah it's a really hard question i guess it's understanding i guess what is the having obviously doing a lot of work around the punishment itself why why is one wanting to punish um self and and trying to explore and understand how exercise is primarily i guess a form of self-care and, and positivity and how can it be turned into a way to to challenge or reduce the punishment itself and actually turn it into a more i guess caring and self self-care based activity so an example of that would be, I guess, not acknowledging, okay, I exercise really intensely. I have to be in pain. Um, so that way I know I'm punishing myself and it's it's damaging me maybe, for example. So how can we acknowledge that, be aware that that's what we're doing and that's the exact um, cause of or reason why I'm doing this exercise and then explore actually what would, what would exercise look like if it was self-care, so the opposite of that. Okay, so maybe it would look like a slow-paced, restorative yoga a more common one okay and explore how would they feel about gently i guess gradually working towards adding in a a restorative yoga program and then just being able to journal and recognize how is that making them feel are they able to make that transition um slowly until they get to a place ideally where they're actually then accessing exercise and seeing actually how nice it is or positive it might be 
to to engage in it in a healthy or, or caring way. Obviously, there's a lot more to this than than that, but just specifically to exercise mm-hmm. would be how can you transition, acknowledge firstly what is the exercise causing punishment, what is exercise that would be caring, and how can I gradually transition to the caring exercise and just be aware and, and seeing the positives of that when I when I use it for self care. That's probably the way I'd I'd look at it from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point in terms of the self-care aspect, because at the end of the day, you know, exercise or movement should be something that is enjoyed and it's not a punishment. But I guess, yeah. like you said, often you need to go a bit deeper than just the exercise yeah. itself and understand, you know, why is that coming up to start with? Um, exactly. And and that might be and that might be a key time when you might use more the radical acceptance side of things and say, maybe I do need to temporarily stop exercise to really explore what what am I trying to why do I view myself in this way? Why am I trying to punish myself and be able to explore that piece of work before maybe coming back to exercise and then having the same idea we just said, but in a different way. So, so that that might be an example of when it could be recommended someone might stop um, and more, more in terms of accepting the reality that actually no exercise right now I'm doing is in a healthy way or is caring. I need to pause, pause it for a second, really explore this piece of work around why I'm trying to punish myself and then gradually reintroduce exercise, but really clearly being aware of how it could be done in a caring, healthy way. Yeah, definitely. And then the other question, um, which may be slightly similar to the first one, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because it's been asked. Um, <laughs> and it may be another example of, it depends <laughs> on the individual. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, yeah. When... I return to exercise should I go back to the same sport or a different one oh, nice good question when I return to exercise should I go back to the same sport or a different one I guess it again it depends on where where they're at in the stage of recovery if they feel like they've they've, they've explored their relationship with exercise and feel like it's healthy then again if they're going back it depends why they're going back to the sport as well mm. so let's say they've they're in recovery and they feel like their exercise, the relationship with exercise is healthy, but they realize in the past, uh, they're going back to I don't know, uh, running, long distance running, and they didn't really enjoy it. Um, they were just, they were using it for maybe unhealthy reasons. I probably wouldn't suggest going back to running. I'd probably explore what, what, what do they want from exercise? What that, with this new relationship they've formed of exercise, what would you want from a sport? And why would that be be healthy for you? So they might say, I want, I want to build a community. I want to really uh, have fun and just build a social network. So I'm like, perfect. And then what kind of things do you enjoy? They might say adventure, trying new things. So I might say, okay, let's look at rock climbing. It's pretty low intensity. It's a good, good way to start. I guess you could make it high intensity. Well, not really. But <laughs> a good place to start would be maybe going to rock climbing and, and doing it as part of a group. You can You can find a whole kind of community in, in something like, like that sport. Um, so I might recommend that. But I'd, I'd say returning to sport is really exploring what? Number one, prevention. So thinking about uh, preventing relapse, sorry. So thinking about actually what sports are more red flag based, what sports are going to increase my risk of relapsing. Already I wouldn't start with them just to begin with. Then I want to look at what, how is my relationship with exercise now? What do I want from exercise and then what sport is going to give me give me that? So just being really aware of 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 yeah, what would be healthy and, and what would be healthy for yourself, 
and what sports fit that kind of picture for you. So, so you're yeah, having a good understanding of each sport and your own relationship with exercise and, and how the two, yeah, interlink. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think kind of it does link back to that other question that someone asked in yeah. terms of, um, you know, if you're using the old sport to punish yourself, probably not great to go back to. And like you've said yeah. now, what what do you actually enjoy? Okay, well, you enjoy adventure and trying new things, then maybe trying a new sport would be a really good thing to do. Um, yeah. So yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that, again, I guess could expand the identity. If, if the identity mm-hmm. was solely placed on one specific sport, a really powerful, I guess, beginning of returning to sport could be going back to a different sport just to expand and show yourself that you can do different things and, mm. and different things can still provide enjoyment and, and positives separate to that original sport. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Um, that has been such a, I'd really enjoyed that conversation. Um, if people want to find out a bit more about you, um, whereabouts can they do that? Yeah, good question. So um, I've got the Eating Disorder Exercise Clinic. We've got a website, so feel free to check that out. Uh, it's Uh we also have an Instagram page the ED Exercise Clinic um, so I'm sure it'll be part of this post so feel free to check that out as well um, and yeah feel free to uh, get in touch at any point if anyone has any questions always more than happy to, to offer some advice and support amazing well thank you so much Daniel it's been lovely chatting to you uh, thank you Hannah If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.